85, I was 19, and that's when we started Guns N' Roses out of the first little LA Guns band, and we started Guns N' Roses. And then I was dealing with guys that were three and four years older than me. You know, when you're 18, 19, and your friends are 23 and 24, there's quite a difference. But the sad part was, is when about eight months into using the, that name, we changed the name, we were doing that, and we got really popular really fast. And then the older guys started experimenting. We're back with a brand new series of How To Be Sad. I'm Helen Russell, author, journalist, and happiness researcher. And each week I'll be talking to a special guest about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. Now, if you're listening in the US, I am excited to share that the book, How To Be Sad, is going to be available in bookstores everywhere starting October 5th. You can pre-order now on bookshop.org, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you like to buy books, ebooks, and audiobooks, and I will love you forever. Welcome to How To Be Sad. So this episode is something of a departure. How often do you hear a happiness researcher in conversation with a heavy metal icon? Not often enough, I hear you say. So today's guest <laughs> is the man who put the gun in Guns N' Roses and LA Guns. He's had 10 studio albums with LA Guns, two with Brides of Destruction. He's worked with them all, and he used to play golf with Eddie Van Halen. His music has been described as sounding like the score to some pagan cemetery, or maybe the music they play on the elevator that takes you down to hell. He has, he says, always been attracted to the darkness. And as someone who has cleaved to the sunshine at every opportunity until recently, I am totally fascinated by this. So welcome to the show, Tracy Guns. What? That is the <laughs> best description of me I've ever heard in my life. I'm so pleased to hear it. I always like to ask guests a little about growing up. And I have read that, of course, music was always important to you. Mm but your mum was a hippie, but you were drawn to the darker side. Tell mm. me about that. Both my parents were kind of, I was born in 66, right? So that's kind of like the end or the, the peak of the hippie era. And for all the hippiness my parents were, they really weren't. <laughs> you know, They got divorced when I was two and I lived with my mom and we kind of lived in like a little hippie community till I was about seven years old in a house and it was, just riddled with music all the time you know but the first thing was Led Zeppelin that was the first thing I ever heard that was like a baseball bat to my brain you what know? age are we talking I was five I always say I was six but I was five I turned six later I remember and I was in the back of my bo my mom's boyfriend's car and he had stereo speakers and there's this little tiny Porsche 912 like the Volkswagen version of a 911 and that middle section and whole lot of love came on, you know, where it's all swirling and it sounds like, you know, the Wizard of Oz and, and the tornado and all this stuff. And woo! And I just poked my head out, like, what is this? You know, five years old, what is this? You know, and my mom, that's the guitar, that's Led Zeppelin. I'll never forget it. I mean, like five years old, I remember that moment, like, like it was last week, you know, like, what is this? You know? So from that point on, to this point today, I've just continually been on this kind of quest to recreate that sound for other people. And that's a lot, of, a lot of feelings, I guess, as well. It's a lot of feelings. How, how did that you know, pan out during the teenage years when we're all riddled with feelings anyway? Well, I was always outgoing, but then I got really bad acne. But I had a girlfriend. so. This is around 11, 12, 13 years old. So I didn't feel the need to be social in the way my other friends did. I did when I got a little older, but like right in, in those years when I was just, my face was just like, <clears throat> I played guitar and hung out with my girlfriend and was great at school and like, you know, a totally good kid. And I had good friends, you know, I was in a band with guys from junior high school and then eventually in high school, same guys. And they made fun of my acne, of course, because they were teenagers and they were assholes, but, but we were good friends. I remember the first time I ever truly felt that empty feeling that everybody eventually gets, I think. And it was kind of after high school, you know, I had this like really magical time in high school of playing guitar and, you know, being in bands and 
having kind of a built-in audience, you know, where I didn't have to reach out to people. You know, it's just like, oh, my friends are like, oh, your band's playing. We're going to that party. You know, so like, hey. So everything was good. My mom was kind of absent in a way, you know, working mom, going to college. But when I was 17, I got out of, out of high school early. I took the, uh, the GED, which was called the proficiency test then. And I got my diploma um, in the middle of 11th grade, like towards the end of 11th grade. So I started college. I went to this junior college, Valley College. And I remember sitting in class and thinking, is this it? <laughs> like, what am I going to do? This isn't a healthy environment for me. Because you know? you've been working towards being kind of higher achieving and getting there a bit earlier? It was like a transitional period in my life where I just, I had a car. I had a girlfriend, I was in a band, but I'm going to this college with people that were a lot older than me. And they didn't look cool to me. <laughs> you know, they didn't look like they were a Motley crew, you know? And I did. I think I had bleach blonde hair at that point. I had blonde hair. And really skinny little kid, you know, teenager. And But I was good at school, so I went to school. I think I promised my mom and dad that, you know, okay, I'll, I'll go to college for a couple hours a day. I didn't, you know, I would go and like after, I, th I think I went for like a month and then I was like, nah, <laughs> you know, I'm not doing this. So I would just go surfing every day. Okay. You know, like, hey dad, I'm going to school. Why are there two surfboards on your car? <laughs> and you're in California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, so I always would sneak the surfboards and I would just go to the beach. And then after the beach, I would go to my friend uh, Danny Tall's house who I grew up with. I taught him how to play bass. So he was my bass player forever. And my best friend. And I'm go surfing, then I go over there. Oh, I'm at I'm at Danny's house, mom. You know, we're we're gonna practice and stuff like that. How was school today? Oh, I don't remember. <laughs> you know, we're playing music right now. You know, it's like ah. so that's as bad as I ever was. Like I, I was never worse than that. You know, it's just like wanted to play music and that was it. But that was the first time I had that like empty feeling of like being unfulfilled somehow and you can't identify it. And it was shitty feeling, I remember. What did you do about that or with those feelings? I left school, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I don't know why I felt that way. I don't know how I, I don't know if I ever overcame the feeling, but I don't think I was alone at that age feeling that way, you know, because I know that there's certain times in, in people's lives where you kind of biologically have changes you know um, hormonal changes and things like that and that was the, like the end of my acne you know that was when my acne started going away so there was a biological change happening for sure but when I was in high school my therapist says that that was like when I started recognizing this thing called the hollow ghost you know like you, like you take in all this praise and but it's really not that important because like, you know, the only person you really want to impress is your mother, you know? So hang on, is this therapist like after this time? No, yeah. this is now. I mean, now, okay. Yeah, so I, I, tell I, me I more that. about the hollow ghost. So the hollow ghost is like, yeah, you know, you go around and everybody praises you because you're a wonderful person and it's a musician, but it's not important. But if it's not there, something happens. Like, where's my hollow ghost? You know, where's... Where's my praise? You know, where are my minions? You know, kind of, kind, that's the kind of subconscious mentality that can happen. So I think when I was in college, I didn't have that around me. You know, like, I, it was just me and a bunch of people that didn't know me and teachers right. that didn't take an interest in me. I didn't take an interest in them. You know, none of this is conscious. So, you know, so I had to make that guitar even more important in my life. And like, I had, I knew that's what I was going to do. And I always knew that was, that's what I was going to do. Because then I had a like a good run later, you know, when I was, we got signed when I was 21, you know, so young. And like from 21 to 25, I was completely invincible, you know, and so naive. That's so young, isn't it? Now that we know that, that the brain, the adolescent brain is still growing until we reach 24. Oh, oh so yeah. you are still. Oh, yeah. Learning. My voice was still changing. Oh, my goodness. For real. And so what year are we in now? Are we around 85? No, 85, I was 19, and that's when, that's when we started Guns N' Roses out of the first little L.A. Guns band, and we started Guns N' Roses. And then I was dealing with guys that were three and four years older than me that were a lot older than me. You know, when you're 18, 19, and your friends are 23 and 24, 
there's quite a difference. And how did that play out? I mean, they were my best friends. So it was, I respected them because they were older and they were mature. They were really were mature guys. They worked, even though they were like, you know, rock and roll guys, you know, with, you know, volatile, you know, aggressive behavior. They were good guys. And they respected me because I could play and I had a vision. So that went well. But the sad part was, is when about eight months into using the, that name, when we changed the name, we were doing that. And we got really popular really fast. And then the older guys started experimenting with certain types of drugs or certain groups of people. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you know, these guys came to our show and they were older than them, you know. And they're like, so everybody kind of separated a little bit and went in their own corner. And I still had braces on my teeth. You know? Oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I still have braces on my teeth. And I'm like, hmm, okay. So here we go, rock and roll. You know, this is and were you aware of what that lifestyle entailed? I think we are also familiar with it now, but that's probably because of gun, bands like Guns N' Roses. Right, right. Well, no, I did, I did know because I grew up with a bunch of hippies. Okay. You know, so I knew what that rock and roll lifestyle is. And I was into you know, music trivia, you know what I mean? Or research from very young, you know, reading every article about every band I liked. And, and their stories and like things that happened. And it was never a fantasy to me. It was always like, that's how it is. You know, these guys aren't making these stories up. So I knew that at some point, if I was gonna live what I thought was the way to be a rock star, then that was gonna be part of it. So I wasn't surprised. But when it happened, it was really alienating for everybody, for each guy in the band. You know, everybody alienated the next guy communication broke down and I left I was like oof you were all living together at the time weren't you as well yeah pretty pretty much I mean you know living here together and then living here together and you know every day it could have been different and the other guitarist Izzy we lived together at my mom's house before we were even in a band together then when he he actually joined Guns N' Roses that was the beginning it's like it's a long boring story but there was a defining moment where Axel got fired from LA Guns and we decided that no, we're staying together and we're gonna to start a new band and we got Izzy. And so I felt, you know, these are my best friends, like I said earlier, you know? So when all this kind of happened and everybody like really grew up in a weird direction, I was out. Did, did you, were you aware of, of being the youngest but also having to make quite a grown up choice of drugs, not drugs and that's a big cognitive load. It was a big cognitive load. And the other thing was, is even though these guys were older than me, they all depended on me for advice for the band. So it was like, you're the young guy, shut up. But what should we do? <laughs> you know, and that's always been my role because everybody I've ever played with till really recently has been at least three or four years older than me, at least. Of course, when I just, I kind of faded out too. I didn't like call anybody and go, I quit, you guys are dicks. It wasn't like that. It was like, like, okay, I see you at rehearsal on Thursday, and I wouldn't show up. And I get the phone call, where were you? I'll be there tomorrow. And why didn't you do it in a definitive way? I, don't, I just couldn't be bothered. I felt like it was falling apart. That was, that was the sense I had that, like, you know, since nobody cared to interact on this level, then why would they care about interacting on this level? You know, and I, I wasn't trying to teach anybody a lesson. I was just thinking about what, what, am, what am I doing? What am I doing next? So finally, I got the angry phone call. First, it was Axel being diplomatic with Izzy in the background. What's happening? You know, kind of a thing. I'm like, I'm not having fun anymore. You know, you guys are my best friends and stuff, but yeah, but you're the guy in the band. And blah, blah, blah. I'm like, ah, here, you talk to Izzy. Hey, man. <laughs> you know, what's up? And I'm, like, I'm like, I'm just not into it. You know, I go, I love the music. I love playing. But all this other stuff that's going on. I don't want to do that. It's uncomfortable. And I kept saying, this is not fun. This is not fun. Well, you know, what are we supposed to do? And I'm like, get Slash. You know, you guys played with him before. You know, he, he wants to be in this band. Oh, but, you know, he's different. You know, he's not like you. And, you know, we've done so much. And, you know, like all this, like, kind of just like boyfriend, girlfriend kind of stuff. And I was like, I'm sorry. You know, I go, could you please not use my name? You know, oh, it's just a band name, dude. Like, oh, so you didn't want it to be 
No, but but I'm glad now. I, <laughs> you know, but then I was like, ah. And that phone call happened in over three days. Like it kept happening. That same phone call kept happening. To the point where I was just like, I'm not coming to rehearsal. You know, it's over. And that's 1985, is it? That was, yeah, yeah, you're right. That was 1985. How do you know? Yeah, it was 19. My journalist research kicking yeah. in a little. Yeah. It's just so fascinating as, as a sort of an outsider that it's quite soon after that that it seems like a band that were not getting it together perhaps have yeah. such mainstream success. Right. With like Paradise City, yeah. Sweet Child of Mine. How, how does that feel? I feel like I would be quite bitter. How, how does that feel at the time? Well, I got lucky, you see, because there's two scenarios that could have played out, right? Either I'm a complete failure, and then the bitterness could lead to, who knows what the bitterness could lead to, especially on that scale. It's like, that's my name, they're the biggest band in the world, and I'm fucking, you know, mopping floors, you know? That would have been a bad scenario. But luckily, when that record came out, our record was just being finished, the new, you know, LA Guns, and I was 20, and I was excited. So young, I can't get my head around. I know, right? Because when I see a 20-year-old now, I'm like... You're a kid. How did that happen, you know? And that was focused, though. That was not having the internet, not having distractions, not having growing up on the streets of LA with my friends. You know, you become mature in certain ways, and my parents were immature. And But basically, I got lucky. I had my own success, and I didn't have to live up to their expectations and expectations which i just learned are the key to depression they're the key to letting yourself down they're the key to relationships breaking up expectations are evil they are bad for your brain so any kind of sadness i've ever really had in my life was due to some type of expectation that i had put on another human being or another group of human beings or a business associate or expecting my cat not to die today because he, the doctor gave him two weeks to live, you know, and then I expect it, then he dies and then I'm sad, you know, things like that. So I got lucky at that age. I got fucking lucky because I was too clueless to realize that all my expectations might have not come true. Yeah, and they did at that point. Band doesn't make it you happen to have been in two that yeah, did no bands make it let's be honest let's look at the percentage of all the musicians that play rock and roll in the world how many of them have taken a dollar home in 30 years of playing the percentage is less than one percent and that's a real number and it's but you don't know that you're 19 years old you know your singer's like better than robert plant you know and you're like, like yeah of course man you know it's yeah, I, I, I made this. You're miming playing the guitar, I would like to say. <laughs> What's that? You're miming playing the guitar. Just, you're playing your air guitar all the time. I love it. Oh, yeah, I'm still a kid. But then comes 26 years old, right? Then comes after touring from 21 to 26 nonstop, having a man carry my suitcases into the hotel every day and didn't do anything. You know, I mean, I played guitar. That's all I did. And how? Yeah, that's so interesting because I think journalists get that to a very tiny degree we are infantilized we go on press trips where everything is taken care of for us we don't right. i don't know how much you don't know how much hotels cost that you know that's right you don't know how any of this stuff works so yeah. how was that for you when was, was there a moment when you realized oh this is the real world there's two moments you know there's a moment of like why aren't you taking my <laughs> suitcase into the hotel and i'm paying for all of this you know those are the two moments right it, it's like being spoiled kind of takes on a new shape, you know. Not that I was never not going to be spoiled, but, you know, it, it morphed. And what it, what it happened was the band, L.A. Guns, we all got complacent. You know, we all got to a point, and those guys are all older than me too, where, you know, the bass player's like, I'm not touring anymore unless it's the south of France or, you know, Hawaii. And we're like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, you're going to play exactly where we play. No, I'm not going to do it. Like, okay. And so at that point, that was on our fourth album. We did a, you know, a short tour for that album. And then him and the bass player just kind of like, ah, I can't do it anymore. You know, I didn't really care. 
you know, I was like, like, all right, you know, you don't want to do it, get somebody else that does. Yeah, the yeah. revolving door, you know, the lineup yeah. changes, that, that must be a source of stress or, or conflict. I don't know. Because I've always known that, that, you know, bands don't really last longer than seven years. Is that right? Not statistically. I mean, you have ACDC and the Stones, you know, and Aerosmith, you know, they kept going, going, U2, Van Halen, but you can name them. You can name the bands that stuck it out and had the type of success where they would stick it out. LA Guns was never as big as U2. So it's like, every time we put a record out, it's like, all right, we're going to go play big clubs and small theaters, you know, all year. And, you know, the man that carries my suitcase won't be there. And, you know, like all those kind of things. So for, for us to stick it out, it's that way. You know, it's like everybody that we hire on that level is an adult. And we're like, we're going to give you $1,000 a week. Is that enough? And it's enough for a while. And then they're like, well, you know, I'm having a baby. Or, you know, whatever happens. And then it's just, it goes away. So a lot of people have come and gone over the years. And seven years, do you think it's like the relationship seven year itch? Yeah, right. The seven year itch type thing. It's the same in a band. You know, that's when people just hate each other, I guess. I don't know. But certainly by the time I was 26 and 27, that's when I became agoraphobic. That's when I felt like I was an old man. Like I had done everything, I had seen everything. And now I was just straight up not ever gonna leave my house. And what triggered that, do you think? Who, I have no idea. Well, I, was, I had malnutrition. I had like no, <clears throat> no protein in my blood. But due to diet? Due to diet, due to living on tour, eating pizza and an occasional hamburger, you know, probably never eating breakfast, probably just no nutrition, you know, just like... Wow, so food. age 26, so you've been a professional musician for, for many years now, yeah. and the kind of cliches of excess and hedonism right. of that lifestyle. And you've mentioned that, you know, drugs weren't, weren't yeah. your thing, but or weren't drinking. you indulging in other things? Sex. Okay. I mean, that, that was it. You know, I mean, I was really cute when I was young. And I played guitar, you know, that's sex like, and pizza. A, yeah, sex Good and pizza, times. yeah, sex, you know, sex, pizza and rock and roll, <laughs> you know, so like that, that was it, you know, and eventually I got malnutrition, I got agoraphobic, which turned into social anxiety, which I kind of always had social anxiety, but then it just amplified when I wasn't feeling well, you know. And when you, when you realized that you were you were experiencing malnutrition did you were you sent to a doctor were you yeah at home for okay was that a surprise to you it was a surprise to me you know because i'd always been skinny you know i was six you know you're invincible yeah i was you know and i and the fact was is i still was i just was scared of myself any of these things come from some type of fear you know whether you recognize what the fear is or not something happens you know you get scared in your brain something tweaks you out and you know those six years of flying all over the world, never sleeping, eating like shit, trying to please everybody all the time. See, that's the other thing. You know, you meet these representatives from the record label, from the radio station, from the distributor, from the journalist. Hi, mm-hmm. if I'm not nice to you, you're going to ruin my life. So I have to be nice to you, which I didn't have to be nice to them. My character, you know, it's like... like Were I'm, you unusual I'm, in that compared to the rest of the band? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, you know, because, and the guys would even say like, like, hey, you, know, you go in first because you're the nice guy. You, know, you go in, you test the water. You go in, you do this, you do that. And being the youngest, they're like, yeah, I don't care, you know, whatever, I'll just do it. You know, so everybody else got to kind of hide behind something mm-hmm. except me. So you're diagnosed with malnutrition and you don't want to leave the house, but where is home at the time? Uh, I lived in Hancock Park, which is like a hoity-toity place in LA just south of Hollywood okay because boys done good you have a bit of money by then. Yeah, yeah 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 things were good and were you living alone no I had uh my girlfriend that I was with that's the mother of my other son and she was working as a model which meant that she worked once a month but went on auditions every day so it's like I was pretty much just alone in a six-bedroom house with this much furniture in a six-bedroom house and then her who was home around five, I guess, every night. But I had a studio in that house. So I would wake up, I would chain smoke, I would go in the studio, and I would record. 
and record and record and record and write and record. And then I had a six car garage and I had a 57 Chevy. So when I wasn't doing that, I would go out there and work on the car. And that's all I did for a year. It sounds like quite a nice life, but I'm aware that I, I should also But I was terrified. <laughs> I was terrified. Okay. I was terrified to go past the front gate. Yeah, yeah. You know? Sorry, not to belittle the. Exactly. No, no. Of course, of course. It's just such a what I think about now. It's so surreal. It's was like, the work you were producing of a quality that you were pleased with? Oh yeah, it, yeah. it, it never ended though either. That was the thing. Is is it was like, I would call musicians from all over the city that I'd met over the years. Hey, I. I'm doing this, come to my house. You don't have to dress up, wear shorts. We're just gonna be in my very hot studio recording. All these guys would come, like, you know, because they knew who I was now because I was this popular guy at some point in history. You know, and there were guys that I always wanted to know when I was younger, but they were older than me and they were more in like the, the LA punk scene, which wasn't very punk at all, but it, it was the punk scene. And, you know, more, noisy guys you know not so technically advanced but more more swagger more like charisma yeah more charisma uh -huh. personality guys with real demons you know real drug addicts real losers you know but i love these people you know i really love them. like come and steal all my gear when you leave you know wow. like, like it was okay. like this kind of like weird circus that i created and that kept me going you know that kept me going and my manager would come over like every two weeks Open the door of the studio. You're still alive? Yeah, oh cool, man. Yeah. He goes, you really need to come to the office. You gotta sign this stuff. You know, like, like okay, uh, I'll come. You know, blah 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 blah. And eventually, I would like make my manager stay at work because I, I would leave at night. Like, if I had to go somewhere when it was dark, I could go. So it was people, or just the ex the experience of the space? I don't know. I mean, I'm still don't like the sun. I mean, I do like the sun in doses, but I'm not like, oh, the sun's shining. Why you live in Denmark half the time? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, I love it here. You know, even at my happiest, the sun still kicks the shit out of me because I grew up in the sun. I'm over it. It's like, okay. But at that point, I would go do important things real late at night if it was accommodating for the other person. Not really late at night, just as long as it was dark. So is it the anonymity that is the appeal? Maybe. Maybe it's just... Because one of my favorite things to do here, if I wake up early enough, is I, I love to just go walk in the city because there's nobody there. But yeah, I get to experience everything mm. without people. Mm -hmm. You know, so I guess it could be. It's and it's not even so much being anonymous. It's just being away from people. Period. Okay. You know, I haven't had great experiences, or I should say, I have had great experiences with people, but they always seem in the end, in my life, anyways. The truth always comes out like, you're not being generous anymore. I don't like you anymore. It's like, what? Like, I, I inevitably end up being the bad person because I stop giving because I get sick of people's shit. But I'll trust you forever until you do that. I'm not going to change my personality. But people can be really <clears throat> one-sided in Los Angeles. I mean, I'm sure that it's like that everywhere. But in L.A., you know, when you let everybody into your house... You know, and they get used to things. And the thing with me is I just want friends. You know, I just want good relationships with people and creative relationships and without ulterior motives, without necessarily having goals. You know, that's the thing about musicians and, and business people. We're always told to have a big goal and then have little goals along the way. And it's like, yeah, that's nice. You know, that's, that's a, a nice way to neatly put it in a package and like, oh, I'm on my way to my little goal. Oh my and who's telling you that, I wonder? Is it managers? More of like your granddad's friend. I was going to say, because it's not a career path that you're told about at school or right. you know, at college. So how do you know how to be a rock star? Who are you looking at career-wise and thinking, okay. You I'm can't. Ready. You can only have idols, you know, because there's no, there's no formula. Yeah. When I give advice, the advice is like, do people like you? You know, like ask yourself, do people, are people drawn to you? Whether you're weird or nice or nasty, are people drawn to you? Because that's the most important thing. Without an instrument on, are people drawn to you? Because you can be the most fantastic musician in the world. And that doesn't mean one person's going to give a shit. Because it's all about personalities. People 
like people. That's it. You know, so Siri, she's she's a, an audio archivist. And so her knowledge of music is really vast and goes back. We listen to things that I've never heard. And yes, there's great music that you can like without seeing the person and all those things. But first time, I'm not the biggest YouTube fan, but let's use them as an example. YouTube puts something on the radio. You don't know what they look like, but you like the sound. But the next step is, oh, that's the guy from YouTube. Mm-hmm. And he's saying a bunch of political shit I agree with. I like you too, you know, or Led Zeppelin. Oh, this this is good music. I like this music. And then you see Robert Plant come out shaking his hair, you know, ah, I like Led Zeppelin, right? But what if he came out and, you know, he looked like the guy that owns Tesla? You know, you'd still like the music, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't be your hero. Okay, so that then brings me on to, you played golf with Eddie Van Halen. and I did. He got you into politics. He didn't get me into. He almost got okay. me. Got me to never get into politics. Okay. Actually, but but an interest in politics. I should clarify, not that you're running for office anytime soon. That I know. No, 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 no. Oh no, politics. Is, jump is my favorite song ever. Jump. Yeah. That's a great song. I'm quite mainstream and vanilla, but jump. <laughs> that's my go-to in any respect. And that's a good flavor, vanilla. Everybody likes vanilla. <laughs> yeah, him connecting him with politics though, it's interesting. Yeah, we were. We used to play golf. The Clinton campaign, I don't know if it was the first one or the second one, I don't remember. It was 93, 92, 93. So we're playing golf and, and there were two golf dates before the election date. The first golf date, he's like, he's like, hey, so the election's coming up and you're gonna vote for Clinton, right? And I'm like, I don't know, like, should I? You know, I knew nothing about politics, I didn't care. I didn't know how it affected the world. I was completely clueless. He's like, well, you, you got to, you know, we're donating to his campaign and, you know, we're holding these fundraisers. And I'm like, like, but I like the little guy with the big ears that says he's a businessman. No, no, that's, that's, no, don't do that. You know, that's, don't do that. And I'm like, why? That's who I like. He goes, just don't do that. You're, you're basing it on, you like his ears. Yeah. You know, how can you vote for somebody you like their ears that says they're a businessman? And I go, because it's on TV, like like most people do. That's the problem. And he doesn't try to talk any sense into me, though. You know, he's just like, ah, well, you better vote for Clinton. I'm like, okay, I will, you know, kind of a thing. And then it's the next day. <laughs> okay, tonight's the night. You're going to do the right thing, right? I'm like, okay. You know, like, I didn't want to commit because I don't think I voted. I, don't, I think I wasn't planning on voting anyways, you know, but... He, him and Sammy Hagar, who was singing at the time, they were the ones that were campaigning for, for Clinton and everything. And I like Clinton. You know, I, I, I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't know what a policy was. He's a saxophone guy, sure. He, right, right, right. You know, people like him. Chicks dig him. So anyways, I get the call, you know, at midnight. You're out in for him, right? I'm like, I didn't vote. <laughs> Why? I go, I go, because we knew he was going to win. You knew he was going to win. Why, why, you know, he goes, I can't believe you didn't vote. I go, that's your thing. He goes, he goes, no, we're all Americans. You know, it's, it's a privilege to be able to do it. I go, well, I would have voted for the guy with the ears then, you know. So it was a source of Tracy's a dumb shit for about a week, you know, kind of a thing. You know, eventually he got over it, I guess. But... Yeah, that was, you know, I respected him so much on other levels, not his golfing, but his guitar playing, and he was a good dad, and he was good to me, that it made me take an interest after that in, you know, politics. And like, why was Eddie so passionate about this when, you know, you know, he could play the Rover by Led Zeppelin, and why does he care about who's president, you know? But then I figured it out, and to no help of my liberal parents, you know, who were always waving the liberal flag and progressive and they really weren't, you know, they're, they're posers, you know, not that I don't love my parents. I'm just saying I didn't know what it was about. And then when I found out what it was about, I moved to Denmark because everything's right here pretty much. So I am curious now, our paths crossed because of your Danish connection. Mm, Yeah. Um, Tell me how you came to be living Danishly and your lovely wife, Siri. Well, we were on Instagram and my ex and I had already been broken up 
but living together for about four years, I guess. And I had another girlfriend. And then... So you were living with your ex-girlfriend, but you had a new girlfriend. That is a complex... It was com- complex. Diplomatic. And yeah, weird. Situation. And not comfortable for anybody. I had Jagger, my other son, too. That's why I was still living together, trying to raise him. But then I had another girlfriend. But then we broke up, and then, then I was just living with my ex and my son. And I met Siri on Instagram because I was arguing with somebody about gun control, of course. And Siri had made a comment like, it's way more complicated than that to the other person. I'm like, who's this person, you know, chiming in? And I see she had these glasses on her picture, her profile picture. And I'm like, like, oh, she's cute. You know, like, like, who is this person, you know? And I think we started talking about cats or something privately. One day I was in Hawaii and I posted a picture, of not an attractive picture, it was just a picture of me out in Hawaii. And I asked a question, you know, which food would you get of these food trucks? You know, and Siri commented, I want it all. And I was like, hee, 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 you're funny. And then I started thinking about it, I go, you know, why not try to give it all to her, to this person I don't know? Like, these are conscious thoughts that I was having. Like, hmm, I'm going to get home from this tour if I'm still talking to this person, and I'm going to go for it, right? Like, just, I think I was, I'm 55 now, so I was just about to turn 52, I guess, or I was 52. Wow. And I'm like, you know, I'd like to have a good life. You know, maybe this Danish person is great. And of course, I knew a lot about her. We'd been talking, you know, she was just getting ready to graduate UCLA. She already had degrees in journalism from here and from London. She's a smart person. She's liberal. We see eye to eye on so many things that we're not in control of, you know, but we see eye to eye and great sense of humor and all that stuff. So I got home, we had one date, and we were pretty much been together ever since. And that was it. Which made leaving the house that I lived in with my ex and my son really uncomfortable for everybody. But I had to make that choice. I had to because I wanted to be happy. You know, I really wanted to not feel like I was a retired white guy living in L.A., Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of details to that that people wouldn't understand, but... Yeah, tell me what that means to you. Is that a trope that you see around you? You know, it's kind of like some people can get to a place in their life where they have it all, but there's more. And it's not that I wanted more, but I wanted to feel like I was living. I wanted to feel like I was still growing you know and being with a partner that could stimulate my mind you know really stimulate my mind like really capture my attention and have conversations that I was interested in totally in a selfish way like you know I really wanted to be stimulated and you know when I was younger it was sex right you know when I was in my 20s it's like like this is stimulating you know this is awesome but now it's different. It's it's once Siri starts talking, like it go. We talk a lot. You know, we we have a lot to talk about, and it's interesting. There's always something new, a new subject or a new detail about a subject, or you know, self improvement. You know, um, ways to make ourselves individually better people or better parents or. Things like that. So, so that's a very nice place for me to be because it's not goal-oriented. It's like a work in progress, which is just like writing music. It's just like, okay, I finished these 11 songs. All that means is that here's an album. It doesn't mean I'm finished. It means there's one album and continue. And parenting is certainly like that. I'm curious how parenting has changed you and if you have differed your approach from your, from your eldest son to your son now. Mm, well, yeah, you learn a lot from your first, right? They're so different, these boys. <laughs> For example, Jagger's not interested in music. He's very interested in, like, kind of higher learning science and math. Math. I love that he's called Jagger, though. Yeah, yeah no. <laughs> How can he it, not be into music? <laughs> it's, so, it's so weird. Um, but no, he's not. And he, and he has all the swagger in the world. He has everything. If he chose he to be... Jagger swagger, amazing. He does. And he doesn't care. <laughs> you know, he doesn't care... Everybody likes him, so he doesn't care 
to impress anybody with anything. How does that, it's always interesting when we see in our children, as a fellow people pleaser growing up, and especially I was always trying to please my mum, how does it feel to see one of your children who doesn't, that's not a preoccupation for him? In a lot of ways, I wish I was more like him because it's wild. I let Jagger be Jagger, and if I feel that he's doing something odd, I say, Jagger, I feel like you're doing something odd. <laughs> and the, the experience of becoming a parent is, I mean, it's so mind-blowing. Thinking about psychedelics, I mean, it's just, it, yeah. it feels like a layer of your skin is missing. How did that affect you, I wonder, and your, your capacity for feeling sad? I felt like mine was enlarged greatly by having yeah. people to care about. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. I've always been kind of a parenting person anyways mm-hmm. to these adults that have been in my life. So having Jagger was being able to cry all over again with him when he would get, you know, hurt or he'd be sad. You know, that, that empathy, you know, like really, when you have a child, if you're any kind of human, your empathy really should amplify, you know, and be in touch with, this little person's feelings. Now with Oli, it's fascinating because it's my second child, but it's Siri's first child. She has so much intuition that all the experience I have with Jagger doesn't really matter so much because every child's different. And you know this because you have three children and they really are different and the experiences are different and the the accidents are different and, and, and everything's different. So for me, it's one of those things. It's a journey kind of a thing. It's like, you know, I love the work in progress. I love watching things grow. You know, that's, I guess that's at the end, that's what it is. But, you know, but in our conversation today, you know, about being sad and how you get happy and, you know, all these things, you know, being 55 years old, I know what makes me happy now. And what makes you happy? Family. Mm-hmm. Family makes me happy. Sitting at my in-laws house down the street and eating dinner and watching Oli play with a, a growl a little tractor thing that's it you know my wife saying good night you know my wife saying good morning you know at the end that's those are the fulfilling things you know they really are they're, fu- they're fulfilling and now the music now that it's really taken second place to family life well, now, of course, the music's more successful because I have no expectations. So all those things kind of fall in line with each other, you know. And it sounds as though your therapist has worked wonders in dealing with the ghosts and dealing with there doesn't seem to be much bitterness. Therapy then helps you a lot with... Therapy is, is a big part of our family, mm-hmm. you know. It shouldn't have any taboo or stigma attached to it because... Therapy is a great way of talking to a stranger that quickly becomes not a stranger, right? And if you have the right one, if you make that connection with the right therapist, you get to spill the beans, you know, you get to to pour it all out and say, I'm fucking up here, I'm fucking up there, I'm fucking this up, I'm fucking everything up, why? And then they ask you why. And then you go, well, maybe because of this. Do you think that to be true? Yeah. <laughs> so, so you know, it's kind of like looking in the mirror and talking to yourself and telling you what you feel is wrong. Even if it's not wrong, at least you get a chance to express yourself and while you're trying to repair whatever you feel is strange in your life or off or anything like that. And, you know, a lot of anxiety problems and depression problems... I mean, there's also physical depression, you know, I mean, there's like, you know, uh, chemical induced depression and things like that, bad wiring, things like that. And of course, you, you seek therapy and medical attention. And, you know, most of the time you can get through it and you can get to a place where you're not as bad or you're all the way better. You know, I mean, there's a huge range. And have benefits. you experienced that also? I do well with therapy. And the reason why I do do well with therapy is I'm super open-minded about it. I'm not reluctant when I do my sessions. You know, I'm like, I'm here. This is what I'm going to tell you today. You're all in. I'm all in, you know, which is me in anything. I mean, you know, there's no point in doing something a little bit. You know, it's like, okay, do it or don't. But this is my second therapist in the past two years. I really like this one. I like the other one too, but she was like a little bit like on the clock. You know okay. what I mean? Like, 
happiness shouldn't be a goal. It should be something that you recognize. You know, it's like, it's like, what makes me happy? If you don't know, you got to find out. And that's a process. So hopefully, you know, you find things that do add to your happiness, right? Everybody's happy somewhere in there. So you want to add to that, you know, oh, I like walking two blocks. That makes me happy for seven minutes. Oh, I like when I put this sauce on this piece of lettuce. Ooh, anything that stimulates you in a positive way, you know, I think that you need to collect these things in your life, you know? And for me, it's being with my family, eating a meal anywhere, at any time. And then having the ability to create music with other people, even from long distance, which is great. I don't have to be in the same room with people that are gonna drive me nuts. And, you know, be productive that way. And establish good relationships with people that are meaningful in your life. I spent a lot of time in the last five years cutting ties with people that I didn't have meaningful relationships with. They were very one-sided relationships. Or and what prompted that? Recognizing, you know, getting to an age where I didn't want to be everybody else's parent anymore. You know, I didn't want to hold their hand. I mean, you know, musicians are delicate people, you know, and I happen to be one too. So since I'm delicate, why should I have to also deal with four other delicate people's problems when they're not dealing with it, you know. And is that something you came to on your own or did therapy help with that? I don't think necessarily therapy helped me with that, but definitely some conversations with Siri and just recognizing things and not just, you know, I have a tendency to see a problem and then just go, go the other way. Like the problem never goes away because I'm just like, I know it's there. It's not going anywhere, you know, so there's no point in doing that. You know, if you're not going to deal with somebody else's problem and it's affecting your life in a negative way, then maybe it's best just to let them go on their own way. And I've done that. I don't really miss those people. And I hate saying that. That's okay. I hate, I hate saying that. I don't miss those people, but they don't make me happy. Yeah. You know, they make me sad, you know, so I don't want to just collect people that make me sad. You know, and my sons don't make me sad, and my wife does not make me sad, and my aunt and uncle in L.A., they don't make me sad, and my guitar tech doesn't make me sad, you know, so, and we have great conversations, and everybody's happy, and that's where it should be. The agoraphobia, have Mm. you experienced that since then? Well, at one point, like, after my, my, you know, malnutrition diagnosis, I got diagnosed with social anxiety, meaning being in crowds and malls and airports full of people kind of triggered panic. And then I was medicated. I took Paxil from 2001 to like 2010 or 11, 12, like 10 years. And during that period of time, the Paxil made me, I don't know if it was comfortable is the right word, but it made me not think about the peripheral noise and chaos, yeah. you know, but it also made me a little bit aggressive. Like if somebody got in my face, you know, I mean, you know, I was ready to go. Like, cause I, my confidence was crazy when I was taking that Interesting. Stuff. So yeah. it kind of gave you some swagger. In a way, yeah. in a way, it definitely, I'd got a lot accomplished in those 10 years. You know, I made a lot of moves like the Brides of Destruction. That's yeah. when I was taking packs and stuff like that. But then I decided to stop taking it Cause that was like, I'm a side effects person. So with that, I would get like a five minute stomach ache every day after I would take the pill, like, you know, an hour later. So I'd be driving an hour after I took the pill, I'd be like, oh man, you know, and I knew what it was. So after 10 years of that, I'm like, you know, I gotta stop taking this cause I don't want these stomach aches. And then it was cool because, you know, the when you come off something like that, you have side effects, you know, you have like, electrical zaps in your brain and like all this stuff because it's so based on your electrical system and your chemical balances that when you come off it you know you experience some pretty trippy things on the way out so you know so i still had like those side effects for like a year but then going into these situations that used to really make me panic i didn't and then i learned how to really cope with breathing exercises that are simple and then when i met my wife like 90% of that went away. Wow. 
it's kind of like when you guys moved here and all of a sudden you could have babies. Yeah. It was kind of like that when I started hanging out with her. It's the connection. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, still sometimes though, like we were in the forest one day and it was so cold. I had a little panic attack. I'm like, I'm going home. You know, like then. And then. The control thing. That's interesting. It's weird. Heat, extreme heat or extreme cold yeah. is, is what I'm really vulnerable to that. And I think it's just because I can't control my environment because yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm out of control. Thank you so much. And I think finally, I normally ask people this question and I think for you it's possibly more poignant than any other, but knowing all you know now, what yeah. advice would you give to your 21-year-old self about how to be sad? Well, you did mention that. My 21-year-old self, <laughs> that might not be the right year but let, let, let me analyze it. My 21-year-old self was riding a motorcycle to the Village Recorder Recording Studios recording my first album with LA Guns. And literally, that was the best year of my life. Oh, my <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, but the advice would be is don't take that for granted. Mm. That's the advice. Is don't ever expect that. So if you're a 21-year-old artist, going into a recording studio to make your debut record, you should appreciate it. You know, that's the right mindset is you should be, every day you walk in there and there's a bagel with cream cheese next to it, you should go, wow, I can't believe my life is here because this won't be like this forever. So right now I'm going to savor every day. That's the advice I would give to myself. That's a very good tip. Thank yeah, you. Enjoying it. it. Enjoy it, but don't expect it. But don't expect it. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a total pleasure to speak to you. Rock and roll. Thank you so much for joining me today. Please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How to Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care.